Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We want to be a place where you can own your faith and take next steps in your relationship with Jesus. Maybe your next step is to seek out a community and join a movement group. Maybe it's supporting movement financially for the first time or using your gifts on a volunteer team. Whatever God is calling you to do, our prayer is that you will step out in faith and let Him lead you. For more information about your next step, please visit movementcolumbus.com. All right, uh, page 737 in your Bibles, underneath your seats. We're going to be in James chapter 5. I want to get you guys headed there. Um, who's liking this series this summer? Yes? No? Cool. I love it. In a lot of ways, James does not pull the punches. Uh, he says hard truths. And for some reason, I keep getting the texts that are really hard truths. So I did not choose this, but I do believe it. And I think that it is a wonderful opportunity and a gift anytime we get to open this book, because I believe that these are God's very words to us. But before we hop in, he just told you, Blake just told you to scan the QR code on the back of your seats for a VIP form. But all of us in this room, if you haven't purchased school supplies yet for the back to school fair, should also scan that QR code, hit the top link to our Amazon wish list, and keep buying school supplies. We have 220 kids that are underprivileged in the city of Hilliard waiting to be blessed by Movement Church. And we are so excited. Yeah, you can clap. <laughs> uh, we are so excited to be able to serve them. We get to serve them in this gym. We don't just get to serve them, but we get to serve their parents and love up on them and give them free oil change vouchers and give them other gifts and things that will make a meaningful transition back to school. And so I'm so, so, so excited about that. The first year that we did this, we had 140 kids and now we're up to 220 this year. And hopefully that continues to boom as God sees fit and as he shows us the need. So, like I said, we've been in the book of James. We're calling this series Counterfeit Christianity because if you were to hold up a $100 bill, inside of it you would see a watermark, and that watermark would have to be genuine for that bill to be actually tendered in a sale and for it to be received as actual money. And in the same way, James, in this book, in a lot of ways, holds up our faith. And he says that the, that the watermark of faith of a Christian is action. It's the thing on the inside. It's the thing that all the time is there. It's not always evident, but when we really examine our life, the question of faith is, do we live it out? And this morning, James just does this again, and we're talking about money. More specifically, the abuse of money. This thing that God has given us to glorify him, to be stewards of, and to use to serve him in the world, and James is cracking down specifically on non-believers in his midst, but this also translates to believers, and he says, a deep, profound warning. And this is what James writes, James chapter 5 verses one through six as we begin our last chapter in the book of James. Look here, you rich people, weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. What an intro. 
Your wealth is rotting away. Your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth that you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure that you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers on whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who did not resist you. Like I said, whoa, like, James, what's going on here, buddy? Who do you have a bone to pick with? Well, we got to remember, James is written for us, but it wasn't written to us. And oftentimes, this is a helpful principle to keep in mind when we're reading the biblical text. Contextualization matters. And James is evoking specific language about a specific set of circumstances that were happening at the time. And most commentators, like I said, actually believe that James is coming down on non-believers that have moved themselves into the ranks of the Christian church, but they have yet to put their faith in Christ. But we can still learn from this. So throughout most of the rural areas of the Roman Empire at the time that James is writing this, including Galilee, you had this stratified class system. And some of the wealthiest people in the first century were people that had land. Land was literally what made you wealthy. And many of the wealthiest people in that system at the time were these landowners who would oftentimes exploit the poor tenant farmers that came to rent the land that they owned to farm it, and they would not just exploit those farmers, but they would abuse the slaves who worked their massive estates. They saw the prophets in their sight. They were purebred capitalists. We're going to make every penny that we can make. Capitalism isn't wrong. I'm just saying they were looking for every opportunity, and they were going to take it. So every ounce, every penny, they were going to squeeze out of the land and the people that worked it. Prophet was king. Prophet was lord. And apparently things had gotten so bad that James says, not only are they doing this, but they are withholding the wages that are due to the tenant farmers and those slaves that are working on their farms. And this is bad in any context. We can all agree that that is wrong, but this is a society with no safety net. These tenant farmers depended on every single day getting paid. This is not paycheck to paycheck living. This is day to day living. And maybe the worst part about all of this equation is that the rich could very much afford to pay their farmers a livable wage, but they wanted, even if they wanted to, they chose not to because they wanted wealth. They wanted riches. And their excuse? Disgusting. Public service. Oftentimes, these wealthy landowners, and this is so American, they would take their wealth and they would whitewash their sins by supporting these huge public building projects, and in return, they would get their names emblazoned on the buildings, honoring them for their public service. Woo! 
But here's the hypocrisy, right? Their names were flaunted on these beautiful buildings as these wonderful benefactors of the city and their community. And meanwhile, the money that built those buildings was soiled with the reality that women and children were going hungry as a result and men were literally being cheated of their due pay. And now we see why James just lights him up like a candle and says, you are murderers in verse six. You are literally killing people because of the way that you are handling the wealth that God has entrusted you with. And so he just puts it in his crosshairs. And I think there's a ton that we as Christians can learn here as well. Because now it would be so easy to just take this text and preach it into moralism, like just be better. But I don't think that that actually solves anything. And I don't think that that is James' intention. In fact, what I want to talk about this morning is James' response. Wealth will fail you, no matter who you are. And if you wickedly get it, and you sinfully use it, you will stand before the God of the universe and you will be judged. You will be judged. God's judgment will fall on those who sinfully get and wickedly use the money that God gives them, period. And there's a ton that you could say about this text, but I want to focus on the two core reasons that James gives for why these rich people were exploiting the poor and hoarding all the wealth themselves. The first is that they counted on it. In verse five, it says this, verse three, sorry. The second is that they believed that it could satisfy every desire. So first, they counted on it. Second, they believed that it could satisfy every desire. Look at verse one. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away. Your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth, there it is, you were counting on, will eat away your flesh like fire. What do you count on in life? What are the things that if you did not have today, you would see your life as meaningless? What are the things that you put your hopes in, your dreams in? When you think about your life in 10 years, what are the things that you hoped that were true about your life? Are those things rooted in Christ or are they rooted in money, James is saying? Because when you count on something, the very wealth James says that you counted on. When you count on something, you trust it. And if you've been here, you know where I am going because what have we said is the crux of this whole book. Faith without action is dead. Faith is revealed in action and faith is, you you know the word, pistis. And pistis is trust and allegiance. It's what you trust most in life. It's what you give your heart to in life. It's what you think you need in life to get you what you think you need in life. That's what our faith is. And so James is saying you count on your wealth because you have put faith in your wealth. And so because you have put your pistis, your trust, your allegiance to your wealth, you will stop at nothing to get that thing. 
But now what is the adverse of that? If Jesus is the thing that you have your faith in and your trust in, you will stop at nothing to get him. But James says, you are foolish because it all fades away. Moths will come and destroy it. Your silver and gold, I mean, this is just provocative language. These metals don't even corrode, which is why they're so precious. And he says, even them, they will corrode. The clothes that you have piled up, this is so American, in the back of your closet that you never wear have holes in them from just sitting there because wealth fades. Things fade. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, right? Like anyone that's ever bought a brand new car or a brand new house or just any house knows that most of the work happens after you purchase it and the work that you do is generally just trying to keep that thing from fading. All of the oil changes, all of the services, all of the fixing of leaky pipes and I had a guy come fix my toilet this week and it took him about two minutes. Thanks, Craig. But things wear down, things fade. And this is why Jesus and now his younger brother James are constantly warning people about the allure of riches and warning people who put their hope in riches because when you put your heart in things that fade, when they fade, you fade with it. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? (laughs) Big brother Jesus, don't store up treasures on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So James goes, I'm gonna do a little twist I'm going to add oomph to that. I'm going to plagiarize my brother a little bit. And he says, your wealth will fail you. It will testify against you on the day of judgment. Because when you count on something, you will do nothing. You will do everything, I should say, to get that thing. But it will not last. It will not satisfy. It will not provide what you think it's going to provide. And this is not just true because scripture says that it's true. This is empirically true. There's actually data and evidence that's back this up. I mean, think about how many Americans live their lives enslaved to the dream of just piling enough money up so that the last 10 to 15 years of their life that they're not even guaranteed would be full of comfort and pleasure. And now new polls suggest that almost one-third of retirees in America say that their life is significantly worse in retirement, regardless of how much money they have. They feel isolated, lonely, and a loss of direction. And half of that disappointment, I would imagine, is because of how much hope, how much trust, how much they were counting on those last years to be everything they ever imagined. Paul Watchell, in his book, The Poverty of Affluence, also lists studies that reveal that a higher percentage of those with elementary school educations and poverty-level incomes report themselves as very satisfied with life than do college graduates with incomes over $100,000 a year. 
How is that possible? Not to mention a new Barna study with over 450,000 applicants in America shows that once Americans reach about $70,000 of household income, that there's a law of diminishing returns based on their happiness, that it really doesn't provide what you think it will provide for you. And so we think that we can count on money, but it's not just a lie because God says it, it's a lie. It's because it is a lie. You can't count on it. You need to count on God. And this is the crux of what James says is the reason behind the symptom behavior of hoarding, cheating, stealing, exploiting. You count on it. Number two, not only do you count on your wealth, James says to these rich people, but he says you believe it will satisfy every desire. Look at verse five. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. Now this is provocative language. He's talking about God's judgment, but I think the illustration is so poignant because think about what fat is. Fat is literally excess energy that we store in our bodies. And how ironic is this? That when we have extra energy and it's stored in our bodies, it becomes fat and food, the very good thing that God created to nourish us, to make us stronger, to strengthen our bodies, to help us grow, to build muscle. When taken into our bodies, an excess actually has the opposite effect. That excess energy begins to literally kill us. Heart disease, hypertension, joint issues, Things throughout our bodies that are created because we have stored extra energy that we do not need in them. And in the same way, money or having it is not bad or evil. Money is just like calories. You need it in some sense to live your life. It's just like food. It's good to have, right? Even in the Bible, there's times of feasting that God says, I want you to do it. But gluttony... And greed over time will literally kill you. The Bible is not against saving. The Bible is not against wise investments. The Bible is not against you pursuing your career and making lots of money. God isn't even against you spoiling your kids from time to time. God is against self-centered, self-directed, self-focused, piling up of wealth solely for the sake of personal comfort and joy. You do that, you die, says James. And we live in a culture that is dying in excess. Dying, not just physically, which we are dying in excess, if you look at our culture, physically. But we are dying in excess monetarily. I love what Cornelius Plantiga says. He says, we are a culture that is overfed but undernourished. And we just keep stuffing finite goods into our heart as fast as we can, just stuffing, 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 but we do not find satisfaction. And so he says, in the meantime, we just become this mere outline of a human being. We live these hollow lives filled with so much stuff, but we're dead. James says, I don't want that. 
Do you feel that way? Do you feel overfed and undernourished? Do you feel like the more you buy, the less happy you are, the more your garage gets full, the less joy you have, the bigger your house gets, the more disillusioned you are by the fact that it feels all pointless? If you can answer yes to any of those questions, then you may be believing the lie that James is exposing that you will be satisfied with comfort and luxury and pursuing every pleasure and desire in your heart. And see, this is why this rebuke, while it is pointed at non-believing people, can also speak to a Christ follower because in a lot of ways, this pursuit of pleasure and comfort and just running away from all suffering and discomfort is the thing that hinders our discipleship in the West more than anything. And I really believe that. Like this idea that like the good life, the good life is the comfortable life. The good life is the life filled with pleasure. The good life is the life filled with stuff. No, the good life is a life full of God. And so we're going to sum this up in a graph. Greed is at the center of this text. And greed produces excess and fraud and murder and cheating and hoarding and exploiting. It says greed. (laughs) Do we have that slide? There we go. So greed produces those things. And I could just say, don't do it. Don't do all of that. That's bad. But we won't understand how not to become greedy if we don't understand what actually produces greed. And what produces greed is this idea that when we have money, we will be satisfied. And when we have money, we can actually trust it. We can count on it. And so what's the deal? That right there is a heart issue. You have symptoms on the bottom, you have the problem in the center, but you have the fuel for the tank of greed up top, which is that we believe that we can count on it and we believe that it will satisfy us. Do you see how that works? And so that means that it is a heart issue. It is something that is wrong deep inside of us. And behavioral modification won't work. Dealing with the symptoms won't work. This is a disease of the heart. And you know who knew this better than anybody on the planet was Jesus himself. And believe it or not, Jesus in the Gospels, he always surrounds himself (laughs) with these types of people. He does. All over the Gospels, Jesus is attracting those who wickedly get and sinfully use their wealth. How many times do you read in the Gospels where Jesus says that he sits down and he has a conversation with tax collectors and sinners? And tax collectors were the very people that were exploiting their own people for their own personal pleasure, comfort, and joy. And Jesus goes right to them, men and women riddled with greed and sin, and he speaks specifically to them. And one day in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 15, it tells us that these tax collectors and sinners are all gathered around Jesus, these greedy people. And Jesus just starts teaching them about the kingdom of God and about life. 
He had a way of attracting these types of people, the worst types of people, the people on the fringes, those that were outcasts, the ones that were broken and shattered. And so Jesus in this chapter begins to teach them, like really teach them and care for them. And you know how he addresses their sin? His little brother, you know, he really gets like aggressive here, but Jesus just tells a story. He says, I want you to consider this. There was a man that had two sons. One son was a good guy. He did everything that his daddy wanted him to do. And the other son, not so much. And one day, this father who had this vast estate had his this younger son come to him and say, Daddy, I know you're not dead yet, but I want my portion of the estate. Give me your money. I don't want you. I want your stuff. What he was saying to his dad was, I wish you were dead. So his dad generously says, okay, son, here's your portion of the estate. He counts his life to it. He puts his hope in it. And he entrusts his soul to it. And so he takes that money and he runs away from his father. And the text tells us that he squanders all of it trying to satisfy every desire he could possibly seek in wild living. And he blew it all. Blew it all. And he lives a life of excess and it literally just about kills him so much so that when a severe famine hits the land in the country that he's living, he's in abject poverty and then Jesus goes on with the story and he says this, when he came to his senses, this is the younger son, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death? I will set out. I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, listen to this, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion and he just takes off running towards his son. And he, with tears in his eyes, he takes him and he gives him a big hug and he says, get the fattened calf, slaughter it. We're having a banquet tonight. We're going to feast because my son was lost and now he came back to me. And I love him. And I forgive him. And I want to do life with him. And yeah, he blew all of the wealth that I gave him, but I want a relationship with him. Wealth will and did fail this dude, but I want us to notice three things from this story, the story of the prodigal son. Number one, forgiveness is costly for God. And this is why James talks about judgment. It cost the father everything. He lost half of his estate, and then he still kills another fattened calf, throws a huge banquet, just to show his son that he loves him. It cost him everything. It didn't cost the son everything. It cost him anything. He took the punishment for his son's sin. He took the judgment. Number two, 
If you're living a greedy lifestyle, the Father is always running towards you. And repentance is turning and running in the opposite direction into the arms of God. And that is freely available to you. You can do that at any point in your life. All you gotta say is, I am nothing without you, God. And Satan will come into your life and you will say, you are nothing. You are not a son, but you are a slave. But you know what the father says? You are not a slave. You are not a servant. You are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. And so then in this context, when James is saying to these rich people, weep and wail because you have rejected the father's love, Weep and wail because you stand in God's judgment. Why? Because it would be just like the son coming back and his dad killing the fattened calf and the son still going, I don't want anything to do with you. Just give me more money. You see? And so ultimately, God's judgment is your choice in a lot of ways. You stand with Christ or he stands with you or you don't. And that's why James says that overaccumulation is going to testify as evidence in court before you because God has extended the invitation in the person of Jesus. He has taken the punishment into himself, the consequences of our sin and our greed, and all we have to do is say, yes, daddy, I love you. There's a story of a time many years ago when a father and his daughter were walking through a Canadian prairie and in the distance they saw this huge and raging prairie fire coming towards their house. And it would soon engulf them and kill them. And the father knew that there was only one way to escape this fire and it was for them to pull out gallons of gasoline and light on fire a ring around their house and let it blaze and char the ground that they stood on. And finally, after that ground had been charred, when the prairie fire drew near their house, they stood on the section of ground that had already been lit and charred, and when the fire approached, it did not encroach on their safety. The girl was terrified, but the father assured her, the flames can't get to us, honey. We're standing where the fire has already been. So it is with the forgiveness of God. When you put your life in Christ, you put your life in the place where the fire has already been. This is the cross, the God's judgment for our sin. He will not let injustice, go unpunished. But just like the father who absorbs the blow of his son's sin, Jesus says, give it all to me. I want it. I'm going to take it in myself. And then we as Christians, we go, I'm going to stand on that ground. I'm going to stand on it. And when the fire of God's judgment comes, and it will come, don't let anybody tell you, that it will not come? Are you going to be standing there where it's already burned? 
You're going to be out in the prairie, frolicking with all your new toys and your pleasures and your money. Do you count on him? Do you know that he can satisfy every single desire? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 34, 7. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you. Matthew 6, 33. Wealth will fail you, but Jesus won't. Greed will testify you against you on the day of judgment. But if you put your faith in Christ, you know who will be your lawyer, your advocate, testifying for you, not against you, is Christ. And he's going to say, they had a messy life, but they have my report card. They sinned, but they put their faith in me. Have you done that today? Today is the day. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Even on mornings like this where it is a difficult passage, difficult text to consume, Lord, we just find joy in the gift of repentance for you. That repentance means that we're just running into the arms of our Father, our Daddy, that loves us. That, 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 That revelation says that there quite literally is a feast, a wedding banquet in all eternity that waits for those that have put their faith in you. That you will kill the fattened calf, that you will provide the linens, that you will choose the choicest wines and the nicest foods to celebrate those that have put their faith in you at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And Lord, in that day, we will be completely satisfied. Well, in this earth right now, we struggle with satisfaction. We trust that there comes a day where we will be satisfied completely by your presence. And so we pray that we live lives of faith in the meantime, that we would pursue you, that we would trust you, and that we would give our allegiance to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We hope wherever you are, this message encourages you to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or to give online, please visit movementcolumbus.com.